Hey Avid listeners, Dr. Celine here with a quick note before the show. Since recording this episode, I've discovered that there are a few things I didn't get 100% right about the history of the Philippines and Tagalog. And I've also found out some really interesting facts about the regulation of languages and publishing scientific articles in languages other than English. If you head to the show notes for today's episode, you'll find a list of corrections and some resources in case you're keen to learn more. Okay, thanks and enjoy the show. Hey, you're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we have a very cool guest on the show who is here for yet another experiment because we're a STEM show and we do experiments. So firstly, I will welcome Dr. Celine to the show, who is a cardiovascular researcher and does interesting things with zebrafish to understand cardiovascular systems. So welcome to the show, Dr. Celine. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Awesome. So that's obviously off to a good start. The reason that we're having a bit of an experimental conversation, or like a different, we're going off script, the whole thing is going to be off script, is I put a call out on Twitter, which I thought was a great idea, and I still think it's a great idea, to ask if there were people who wanted to come on the show and they wanted to like have a normal chat and then maybe try and either translate the episode into like the language of their choice, preferably one that they spoke fairly fluently, or have a chat with like someone else, like a three-way conversation. Anyhow, it was a bit of a pie-in-the-sky sort of wild idea. And Celine was one of the people who responded, so thank you. But she's also pointed out that there's some flaws in my plan. Do we want to start with that, Celine? Yeah, definitely. So I guess let me give a bit of context about my reaction to your call. I was really excited about it because I definitely think that it's an underrecognized sort of issue in the world that, of course, English is spoken by many, uh, many, many countries, but it's definitely not the only one. And even when, as a scientist, when I read research, I come across articles that are in a completely different language that are not translated into English. And I'm sure that people whose first language is not English would come across the same issue. And having to do that work of translating the science into a different language is not at all trivial, especially when there are so many words that we use that are, that are quite complicated, that are not used in everyday speech. But I also came at it from the point of view that English was not my first language, uh, although it is the one that I primarily speak now. So I was born in the Philippines. And again, this is the Philippines is, is really not thought about very much, I think, on the, the global stage of scientific research. I thought this would be a very cool opportunity to bring the Philippines and Tagalog, the national language of the Philippines, to the fore. So, Yeah. So it's a lot of things. And part of the good news is in what Celine's just said is that she's validated what I think. So the truth is the number of languages I speak is one, which is Australian English fairly well. I'd like to think mostly fluently. I, and I can speak, you know, I would like a coffee or a beer in numerous other languages. And that's sort of the extent of it. But I'm also really aware that 
at a lot of dining tables around Australia, there are families where you've got like parents speaking one language and kids speaking English. And I think it's actually really common to have this sort of like medley of languages going on. And I think we need to celebrate that more in media. And this is a form of media. We're starting to see it a little bit with particularly with Chinese and English. And that's really cool. But is it Tagalog? Yeah, Tagalog, or I I think a lot of people do say Tagalog. It's okay. Both is acceptable. (laughs) Do you know anything about the language, like where it comes from, or like is it related to other languages? I'm going to get in trouble from my parents about this, but yeah, so it is quite heavily influenced by uh, Spanish. And if you know Spanish or if you've ever watched anything on Netflix that is Spanish, you many, many words will be either the same or extremely similar to what is spoken in Tagalog. And that sort of dates back to the history of the Philippines when the Spanish did try and colonize the Philippines. I'll have to fact check myself on that. (laughs) But there are also elements of Indonesian woven into Tagalog as well. I'm not 100% sure where that history stems back from, but you will see that influence in there as well. Yeah, right. Okay. So just a good reminder for everyone who thought that English was the dominant language. There's also, don't forget about Spanish. They, They got around. That's very true. And the history of the Philippines is is a complicated one that I'm not going to get into now, but there was a period of time where Spain and the US were sort of fighting for for dominance in uh, the Philippines. So not only is Tagalog quite heavily influenced by Spanish, the English that is spoken in the Philippines is very heavily US. So almost anyone that you, that you speak to in English who's Filipino, that will have an American accent, which is also quite interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other world is accents, right? <laughs> like, so when you were growing up, what language was your education in? Yeah, so I moved to Australia when I was around six. So much of my education has been in English. When I was born in the Philippines, I did speak fluent Tagalog for the first uh, few years of my life until I entered into the English schooling system and have spoken English pretty primarily since then. But as you mentioned before, the conversations that were happening around my dinner table were always partly English and partly Tagalog. And part of that also stems from the fact that uh, my brother was actually born in New Zealand when we migrated there before we came to uh, Australia. So he never really spoke Tagalog. So we would always have to speak both languages. Yeah, and I think that's like if you grow up in a monolingual household, like you can easily forget that there's actually a lot of people where the dinner table is this sort of like a bit of a confusion of languages and yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, to that point, it it is really fitting, I think, that we're having this conversation uh, around this time. I believe it's Harmony Week or Harmony Day, sorry, upcoming. And I read today that almost half of Australians actually were born or have a parent who was from a different country before they came to Australia. So that's not a trivial amount of people who would be speaking or understanding languages other than English. No, not at all. And, and it's not always just going to be the big ones like 
Mandarin and Spanish and German or something like that. Like there's all the languages that you don't normally think about or are there Tagalog like shows on Netflix? That's how you know you've made it. <laughs> there is actually one uh, that we were very excited about. It's an anime actually uh, called Trece and the all of the voice uh, it's based it's set in manila in the philippines and the original voice actors are filipino i believe and it's been translated into both english and the original tagalog so that's definitely a breakthrough for us i think <laughs> that's really cool and that's one of the great things about netflix is having this like global languages of tv it's very cool yes definitely <laughs> Good for if you need to remember that not everyone speaks English all the time. So the normal question I would ask, right, is what is your job? What would you say if you were going to, like, you went back home to the Philippines? Someone says, what do you do? How would you answer that in Tagalog? That's extremely difficult. So (laughs) it is hard enough in English. So in English, the way that I would describe myself is that I'm a cardiovascular researcher. I don't know that there is a Tagalog word for cardiovascular. I honestly think we would just say cardiovascular, (laughs) but in a Tagalog accent. So (laughs) the only thing, you know, when my family speaks to me, they will often sort of jokingly call me a doctora, which is, you know, a female doctor. And that's possibly the extent of the translation between English and Tagalog as far as my job goes. <laughs> okay, so we'd be able to get so far as to say, like, you sort of work in something medical, like it'd have that gist, right? Of like, it's medical, and it's like, helping people be healthy. Mm. But it wouldn't have like the narrowness of cardiovascular. Yes, that's right. At least I've never heard somebody say cardiovascular in Tagalog. So, <laughs> Could you say something sort of like equivalent to heart health, maybe? I think, hmm, what is health in Tagalog? <laughs> You're really testing my language skills here. So the word for heart is puso, and if you try to translate that into the well-being of your heart or the good function of your heart is how that would translate the rough words. (laughs) And that right there, listeners, is one of the great flaws in my plan is that even something that you sort of think, eh, heart health, right? Like how heart, like surely every language will have this direct, clear-cut translation into. And language is nowhere near that direct like you can't just go this equals this it's I guess a lot more that's why sort of Google Translate doesn't do the job I'm sure we could type it into Google Translate and we'd come up with something and you'd be like I literally just typed in health into Google Translate between Filipino and and English and it translated it into health so (laughs) that's yeah how good it is yeah right and so obviously, like it, my, my sort of thought was, oh, maybe it wouldn't be so hard for people to just say what they do in English, blah, 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 and then say what they do in their native tongue. But it's not that simple, is it? It's really not. And I think it's not so much, 
I think part of it is just that exactly as you've alluded to, we just don't think about it. We just think about definitely science, but if I'm writing something scientific, like a paper, I would just write it in English and assume that everyone will be reading it in English. (laughs) Yeah. What does that mean, do you reckon, and this is a tricky one, but for Tagalog research, like is it just that all researchers there in the Philippines would have to be fluent in English as well? Yeah. So I think that the Philippines is quite a unique example because the curriculum in the Philippines does teach English quite heavily is my understanding. Certainly that was my parents' experience was that their education, they were taught to speak English very well. They speak it hardly with any accent and they're extremely fluent. So for them, I think that it would be easier than other countries where English is either taught as an elective or or is just taught in the basics. But even in this unique example, it would be really difficult to understand concepts that just don't translate from English into a native tongue, particularly if you speak a dialect. I mean, how exactly as we were mentioning, you know, how are you supposed to understand if you don't have a good background knowledge of science in your native tongue or in English? How are you supposed to understand more difficult concepts like cardiovascular research and everything that encompasses, particularly when we start coming to words that uh, definitely have no translation into English? (laughs) It gets hard, right? And it sort of feels like, and maybe this is just like an English-centric view, but if there isn't something available to these communities, they have the risk of falling behind, like if we don't translate stuff. And if we just go, no, you just have to learn English, like there's going to be groups of people who, for whatever reason, that isn't accessible. And then like they won't be able to have access to information that could be valuable to their lives. That gets really complicated, actually. Yeah. And but I think that's why it's important to have this conversation. So where I see the gap is, you know, perhaps somebody in the capital city of the Philippines, Manila, would be happily able to understand a scientific paper in English. But if they then come from a rural community that only speaks a dialect where English is not well taught or accessible, and they're trying to bring this cutting edge research or concepts to their communities, how do they translate it into something that can be used by their community, that can be trusted by their community in a way that respects their culture and their language. That becomes a really difficult conversation that is excluding much of the world that doesn't have access to these kinds of resources. And that's a really interesting concept as well, like the concept of trust and how I think just naturally you will trust more people who speak like you and whether that's an accent, you know, like I'm sure subconsciously I slightly more trust people with Australian accents than like 
thick American accents, for example, right? Like there'll be some level of bias there. And it's not just, yeah, it'll, it'll be like, well, you're a fancy city person coming in with fancy city words. Like what would you know about like real country life or something? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly messy. right. Yeah, it, it becomes really messy and we just don't think about it. But to that point, I guess, like what you said, I think language is really involved in that trust that you build in communities. So this is something that we really need to both address and, and just make people aware of because it's definitely not spoken about often enough. So we mentioned earlier that you work with zebrafish. Do you want to just give listeners a bit of a, like, your wonderful elevator pitch as to what it is you do with zebrafish? Yeah, so I, uh, as we've already mentioned, I'm a cardiovascular researcher. So broadly speaking, this means I study heart and heart disease. But what I do with the zebrafish is that I actually take genetic variants that we find in human families and I genetically engineer them into zebrafish. And we do that to try and understand how these genetic variants are causing heart disease and then start working on how we might try and fix that and help these families. Okay. I was hoping that concept might be easier for you to translate, but I'm starting to think that that will actually be harder than cardiovascular because that is the concept of genetic engineering, all that sort of stuff, that's quite technical. Yes. Yes, it is. And so again, I think we keep proving our point. It's difficult <laughs> to describe. <laughs> and I think again, you know, if I try to translate that sentence into Tagalog, half the words, there's not a Tagalog word for it. It would just be the English word. So I think maybe I would be able to translate you know, disease, mechanisms, <laughs> but the rest of it would essentially just be English anyway. And no offense, but that does kind of seem like cheating if you just kind of like say the English word with an accent, because that's... Yeah, <laughs> we, we lovingly call it Taglish, Tagalog English, <laughs> which is, I'm going to say as a, you know, a less fluent Tagalog speaker, that it's still valid, guys, still valid. <laughs> You did mention that it's a bit similar to Spanish. Have you ever interacted with Spanish media or you know, gone somewhere Spanish speaking? Like, have you ever sort of exercised the Spanish kind of muscle? Not in person. I've definitely watched Netflix shows <laughs> that are Spanish and been pleasantly surprised by the number of words that. I understood without needing the subtitles. <laughs> and when I I do have researcher friends who are Spanish and we we have a lot of conversations about sort of picking out, oh, is this word the same in Spanish as well? Oh, okay, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the same in Tagalog. That's lovely. I'm sort of wondering, like, as a Spanish, I'm going to call you Spanish-adjacent person, like, are you aware of if there's a huge amount of like Spanish research out there that isn't translated? Like, is there Spanish cardiovascular research papers? There definitely is. All of the ones that I have seen have been translated into English, although I think there are a small proportion of papers that I've come across living in Australia that 
where you know that the original article was in Spanish and it's been subsequently translated into English. But the interesting thing about that coming from the Australian side is that you never see the Spanish version of the article unless you specifically go looking for it. It will often only come up in our searches as the English article. Right. So have you ever tried to read like a scientific article in Spanish? I have not, but now that you have said that, maybe I will try. <laughs> because I'm really like, even if you're able to get like the gist of sixty percent of it, I'm just sort of curious how it would compare, like whether or not the translation, and that that could be like a whole other thing, right? Is like the translation of research papers. How have they done it? Is there something that got lost in that translation, or have they sort of like put a gloss on it that's a bit different? I've never even thought about that. Yeah, definitely. That's actually a really good point that I haven't thought about very much either. I think I'm going to have to go and find a Spanish article and see if I can understand any of it. That's a fun exercise for me to try. But so another question that that brings up for me is that I don't actually know who translates the articles. I don't know if it's the journal that translates them or if the researchers are asked to also provide an English translation. Uh, I would be very interested if anyone knows the answer to that. <laughs> it's possible that some listeners aren't really aware of how journal articles come to be. Like we just know that like oh, it's peer-reviewed science, therefore can trust more than something a meme found on the internet. But do you want to like just give the high level how on earth scientific papers come to be? Very high level. Essentially, once we've finished our experiments and whatnot, we will write it into an article and we will submit it to our favorite journal. Basically, we'll choose that journal based on how relevant we think the topic is, how interested they'll be in it, and they can choose to accept or reject that article. But if it's accepted, Essentially, what happens is that an editorial team at the journal will go through your article and fix up any kind of grammatical errors and things like this, or, or ask us to change change some wording slightly so that we can make it uh, more accessible or, or for similar reasons to that to our audience. And then once they're happy with the article, it will then be sent out into the world published for, for everyone to see or everyone who can access it. <laughs> because they're often behind paywalls. But yeah, that, that raises the question of like, like you'd assume that the translation is done after all those other edits and like the revisions have been made. Yes. But does that translation then go through its own like revision process? Yes. And this is very murky to me because I've never had to deal with this before. So I'm not sure during the revision process, the editorial team will send it back and forth to the researchers multiple times, but there's a stage called the final proof. And that is basically the editorial team is happy with it. The research team is happy with it. And now it's ready to be published. So presumably at that point would be the stage at which translations are made because it's the final product, but whether that translation goes back to the research team to confirm that they've translated it correctly, or if it comes from the research team, I have no idea. 
So listeners, if you know, please tell us because now I'm very curious. I mean, if you're watching a Netflix show and you're watching it with like the original language and English subtitles, and even if you know just like 10% of that language, you can tell that, that tra- the subtitles are not word for word. Like you're like, that's not what that person just said. That's, I know enough, insert language here, to be able to tell that that's just not. And whether it's this, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. And actually, when I was watching that Tagalog show that I was telling you about, I listened to it in the original Tagalog and I had the English subtitles on because that's the original format that it comes in. And as I was reading the English subtitles, it didn't quite match what was <laughs> what was being said. It was a rough translation, but it didn't quite match. So even then, I thought, oh, this is, they're really simplifying what they've just said, but I guess it's essentially the same thing. So if that happens in science, we could be getting into a bit of trouble. <laughs> sure. I would really like you to confirm that that's not what's happening in science. I'll do some research into it. <laughs> well, lucky you're a researcher and that's the thing you're good at. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> okay. So I think we've definitely shown that it can be quite hard to do this this whole like one for one particularly when we're talking about like this deeply technical stuff and it's not going to be just science it'll also be I'm thinking also particularly new technology where you've got things like bluetooth obviously bluetooth wasn't around when tagalog was sort of being developed as a language so do you know how to say bluetooth in tagalog bluetooth i believe it's literally bluetooth <laughs> yeah had the feeling <laughs> but it was something i sort of I wouldn't want anyone listening to think that because it's hard and because there's not like a direct translation, it doesn't mean that languages other than English are simple or that they don't have the capacity to do technical things. I just don't want anyone to think that, oh, well, you can't translate it. That's because they're a bit backwards or something. That that would be terrible. That would be terrible. And I guess I'd pose a a slightly different way of thinking, which is that the rest of the world hasn't thought about how to make room, make space for languages other than English, which means that countries whose first language is not English have had to adapt to a world that is primarily speaking English. And so if anything, I think that is kudos to them because they are now bilingual or multilingual. And meanwhile, we're over here just speaking English. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of feels like English just sort of went around with some like really big elbows out and just sort of like elbowed everyone else out of the way and was like, no, 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 we've got this. And then also became an incredibly hard language to learn. Yeah. One of the, um, a bit of a side note, but uh, one of the fun things that you learn about English as you're learning English is that it's one of the only languages in the world that's not regulated, which basically means, very roughly means, that you can make up any word that you want and it may or may not become a real word in English. (laughs) But that's not the case for other languages who actually decide the constraints that make a word in that language. I didn't know that. Check with some linguists. (laughs) Okay, yes, clearly, because that's a form of STEM. But so every year they add like another word to Merriam-Webster dictionary or something, and it's things like, I I think there's even like an Australian dictionary where they add things like stroll out was added as a word. Do other 
languages not do that? My understanding is that they don't. <laughs> it, it can be classified as slang, but it's not added as a proper word. There are certain phonetic sounds. I don't know all of the parameters, but it's not purely based on how often people are using it and the general consensus about what that word means. There are a lot of other factors that other languages like uh, French and many European languages actually take into account before they decide that it's a proper word that should be included in the language. I can't work out if that's like a sign that English is kind of like cool and open to everything and just sort of like, yeah, we'll take you. Or if it's just sort of like has a really low standard. (laughs) I think it's a bit of both. So I like to think of it as, you know, we're like constantly creating new words and that's very cool. Although some of the words I would argue about, (laughs) but I think as soon as you know that, or definitely as soon as I learned that, I suddenly understood oh, all of those language rules that we were very confused about, such as I before E, that were mostly applicable, but sometimes not applicable for all words. That's where that's happening. <laughs> it's because it's not quite regulated there. And then you sort of understand, oh, okay, we've made leeway here, but the original rule was maybe I before E and it didn't apply to everything. <laughs> In which case, really, it's not a rule. It's just a guideline. It's just a guideline. (laughs) What I'm now just sort of thinking about is I'm guessing through your research you have come across findings and, you know, learnt new things. How would you, like, I'm just wondering if it would be easier to communicate findings to people rather than, like, the technical how you did stuff? If you go on more walks and, you know, use your cardiovascular system, you'll be healthier, that kind of stuff, because often that's what science communication kind of boils down to. Like, would that be easier to communicate? Yeah, I think it would be. So if I think about, for example, what doctors would currently be doing in the Philippines, of course, they would be boiling down all of this research into advice that they're giving a patient, for example. So exactly as you said, they could be saying, you need to go on more walks. And that is very easily translatable. So simple concepts like this with very generally used words, everyday words, I think that could definitely be easily translated into all languages, hopefully. Yeah, where it's sort of very tangible and actionable kind of stuff that's linked to everyday life so it's just in my head you have now gone on some travels to do some science communication in the philippines and you're standing in a in a communal space with a powerpoint and you're giving a presentation about your um research and i'm just sort of wondering which bits like you would be able to more confidently communicate i love that scenario for me I hope it happens one day. <laughs> I can really see it. I can. It's very, very clear. I think I would like to come. If it looks like it's happening in the future, I'll let you know. <laughs> we could do the podcast there and that would solve all my problems. We could have somebody next to me literally translating as we go and then you would see how many words are just English. <laughs> but <laughs> I think if 
for example, I was not going to give a scientific talk. I was going to give a talk to a lay audience than just about what, broadly speaking, I think our research has found and what that might mean for them. I think those concepts would be quite translatable into, bar some words, into Tagalog. So for example, I could say that I study genetic heart disease and I have found that combining your genetics and your lifestyle factors can mean that you have more severe heart disease as you get older, something like this. That is very easily translatable, I think, bar perhaps saying the word genetics, which I don't believe has a translation. But most people would grasp the basic concepts of that. Once you start getting deeper than that into, into the technical language is where we really start to get into trouble. Yeah. And in fairness, like that's the same challenges that you'd find if you were doing like science in a pub kind of thing and you had you were talking to an audience, just average peeps who'd had three pints, you know, probably be fairly similar. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> Even without the three pints is difficult, but with three pints, that's another story. <laughs> I'm just wondering, maybe this is like a good practice for science communication. See if you can do it in Tagalog and then do it in English from the Tagalog. So you sort of go there and back again and you've got your science in a pub talk. I love that idea. I'm actually going to take that on board and just think if I can't think of, if this word doesn't translate, maybe I should be using a different word. <laughs> this could be like, I could have just unlocked the secret to science communication. <laughs> <laughs> now all we need is for everybody to become bilingual at least and just check. <laughs> Can they translate it? <laughs> yes. I think, honestly, I think it'd be easier to get people to understand science than to get off their butts and to learn a second language. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm just not having enough faith in my Australian buddies. But I really like the idea of you going over there and doing some like presentations now. Maybe take some of the zebrafish with you. I would love to do that. I don't know if they have any zebrafish research in the Philippines. I'll have to look into it. But if they don't, that can be a thing that happens. <laughs> can bring it over there. <laughs> bring this up with this. What's something that you're working on at the moment that you're particularly excited about? So this is work that I did during my PhD, which I finished last year. And I'm excited about it because it's continuing into avenues that I think are going to be really helpful for people. That's, that's my hope. So essentially I study a heart muscle disorder that's very common. It's called dilated cardiomyopathy, which basically just means that the heart muscle is enlarged and it doesn't pump as well as it should, which is very, very bad. And what I've been doing in my research is figuring out that how genetic variants that cause this disease interact with your lifestyle factors, such as when you drink excess amounts of alcohol. And what I found in my research is that if you have a particular type of genetic variant, even if you drink not excess amounts, but moderate or excess amounts of alcohol, if you combine these two together, this increases your risk of developing dilated cardiomyopathy 
at an earlier age and could potentially lead to the disease being more severe for you. And I did all of that. I found all of that in our zebrafish model. And so what I'm really excited about now is that we're hoping to translate some of those findings into humans. So we're trying to track down human patients who have dilated cardiomyopathy, test their, uh, do genetic testing on them, check how much alcohol they would typically have in a day and see whether or not that correlates with them having a more severe disease. Awesome and important and also obviously very hard to talk about without using all the technical words. But how do you get a zebrafish to drink alcohol? (laughs) This is actually one of the very cool things about using zebrafish is that because they have gills and they are basically absorbing oxygen through their gills, they're actually absorbing everything that's in the water through their gills as well. So that means that you can put alcohol into their normal tank water that they swim around in, and they basically just drink it through their gills. Okay, right. We don't give them little glasses in a bar, although that would be a great cartoon. That would be. (laughs) Was there any specific alcohol you gave them? No, we actually just gave them pure ethanol, uh, but diluted down, of course. Not They're not swimming in pure ethanol, I promise. It's very difficult to translate how many drinks that would sort of be for a fish to, to a human value. But at one point I did try very hard and it translated roughly to sort of three to five drinks a day. <laughs> very roughly. Did they act weird? This is perhaps one of my favorite things but it also is maybe slightly concerning about about humans. But (laughs) they act very similarly to humans who are drunk. So they are a little bit more aggressive. They don't like other fish. So zebrafish are are, a really social species. They love to school. They love to hang out in groups. But when you give them alcohol, suddenly they're fighting. They don't want to be near each other. They often are quite anxious and they don't like the light so they prefer the dark part of the tank uh, if there is one (laughs) and they can often be either very hyperactive or very lethargic depending on which fish it is I suppose. (laughs) Right I feel like that you could translate into Tagalog. Yeah (laughs) just be like do you know how you act at the bar that's what was happening with the fish and it means (laughs) And then the fish's heart gets sick. Exactly. Okay. So you're now taking that research further? Because it sort of sounds like you solved the problem. The the two things are related. That's half the story. So I guess because we've only shown it in zebrafish, the next step is to really make sure that that is the case in humans. And then once we've confirmed that in humans, the goal would be to actually work on trying to find treatments for it or find a more tangible way of solving the problem. Because one of the problems at the moment is even if you give this advice, ultimately the only sort of clinical solution that a doctor might be able to give you is to say, don't drink alcohol if you have this genetic variant. And I'm afraid we all know how that goes. (laughs) So the next thing you're going to do is invent a different kind of alcohol that doesn't affect the gene? (laughs) I was thinking, I mean, maybe that's what 
non-alcoholic drinks are about now, we could definitely use that. But no, the next step would be to figure out if there's actually some kind of molecular link that's making the interaction stronger. So whether or not the genetic variant and the exposure to the alcohol, maybe they impair the same cellular pathway in the heart and we could work on a therapy that targets that specific signaling pathway that could then prevent the interaction or lessen its effects. It really highlights how, I guess, complex it's the human body. Obviously, it's complex, but like you've got so many different things interacting, and that's really only two things. Like, no doubt, you know, in 10 years' time, we'll be doing further research and be like, oh, actually, there's this other third thing. Like, it's alcohol and I don't know, salt intake or something. And I, I think we're at a really interesting point of science where we're able to start not just looking at individual, like those silos, but where the things interact and how they, what happens when things interact. Yeah, definitely. And I think we're at a very interesting junction with science at the moment because we have so much technology that it's very empowering and it's very enabling, but it's also pointing out how small our questions have been in comparison to the questions that are actually out there. It's really opening up a lot of questions that we didn't even consider because we had no way of of thinking about them. Even 10 years ago, genetic testing and the idea that many diseases have a genetic basis was not a thing. And now we consider it for almost every disease on earth. And now we're coming back to, okay, well, it's not just the genes, it's what's happening in your lifestyle and how does that work? And it's really, it's very interesting to be here at this time, but it's also very complicated. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I can see it could be a little bit overwhelming as well. That's just a lot of things happening at once. Yeah, for sure. And maybe that's a something that people who aren't in science don't really understand is I think it looks like we're all answering these really complicated or, or small. We're just answering these questions and they don't understand what it's leading to. But the questions are necessarily refined. They're very, very specific questions because you can't possibly answer something as large as how do you cure heart disease. When you dig down into the details, you realize that so many things impact other things and you can't possibly work on all of them at once. So you have to really focus on one question and work on that for a little while. And that could take years before you move on to trying to solve the bigger stuff. Yeah, these things are complex. There's not one magical key that will open it and solve it all. Sadly, no. (laughs) On sort of that topic, are there any other myths, rather whether about cardiovascular disease or about languages and translations or anything, any myths that you'd like to sort of squish? Uh, Scientifically? (laughs) Scientifically, linguistically. The world is my oyster. I guess something I'd like to bust (laughs) surrounds what you need to be a scientist, I suppose. I think there is maybe still a misconception that you have to be really, really smart. You have to be a genius to be able to do science. And I think that is a really damaging concept for young kids or just younger people in general who are looking to build a career in science. I think they might be interested, but they're thrown off because they don't think that they're smart enough. And that is a myth I would definitely like to bust. I'm by no means a genius of any sort. 
but I've still made it here. So if I can do it, you can definitely do it. <laughs> well, no, I'm sure you no doubt you're smarter than you're giving yourself credit for. But at the same time, no, you don't have to be Einstein or Michelangelo or <laughs> Galileo. Galileo. <laughs> <laughs> I knew where you were going with this. You probably also don't want to be, don't have to be Michelangelo, but you don't have to be all around genius of all the things. Like we're now at such a point where you you don't have to be able to do everything and you don't have to be able to hold all this information in your head all at once either. I think it's impossible to hold all of this information in your head just with the amount of information that is actually out there and is accessible to all of us. There's no way that you can know everything about even one thing. So don't feel like you need to come in and, and suddenly become an expert. That's definitely not been my experience. So, but, you know, you can still be a scientist without that. Always an important myth to bust, I think, that one. As we wrap up, have you got a shout out for us? Someone or someone who you think are doing an awesome job and deserve lots of virtual high fives? I don't know if it's a shout out so much as a virtual hug. <laughs> I would like to offer a virtual hug to any PhD students or early career researchers who have come out of COVID right now and are just struggling a little bit. You're still doing really well. I'm absolutely sure of that. But I know from speaking to many of my friends uh, that it's been a very challenging time to have finished a degree that is the hardest degree in the world, arguably. And that's supposed to be a really exciting time, but coming out of COVID or experiencing that during COVID and now coming out of COVID has left a lot of us feeling extremely overwhelmed and unsure about where to take our career next and what opportunities are even still available to us as they were in the pre-COVID world. So I guess big shout out to all of them and a big hug and we can make it through so just keep pushing on i think there were even entire phds done during the pandemic and it's not really over but yeah it's um many many hugs and high fives because there's a lot of people questioning everything and it's hard and you're keeping on going and that's amazing so yeah it will sort out might just be a bit messy until we get there but we'll get there we will embrace the messiness. <laughs> That's literally the only option they stay since the 2020s. There's, there's just nothing will go to plan. <laughs> just accept that. That was beautiful. Thank you. Was there anything else you wanted to add, actually, before we finish up? No, I think we've covered a lot of stuff. <laughs> I think it's good. We have. And hopefully, maybe we'll find someone who speaks Spanish and you know, you can talk about Spanish research papers or something because I refuse to give up on this idea. I'm convinced there is value to multilingual podcasting. I love that idea. And if we could get more people who have similar languages, we could just compare words. That's always a fun activity. <laughs> you could say something and then they could say, oh, that'd be a great, that might be a whole different kind of podcast. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Celine. This has been absolutely delightful. I think We've all learned something and hopefully we all now have a greater respect for all the bilingual plus people in Australia. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.